Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Comic Book Book Club. I knew the number off the top of my head because this is an important one. We don't have time to dilly about. I'm your host, Matt Lasik. I'm your co-host, Kendra Forte. And today we are covering the white whale of comic books. That's right. We're talking about Alan Moore's Watchmen, first published in, I believe, 1984, 85. I just said I didn't have 86? time to dilly about. Some, sometime around then. Hold on. It says 86 in the on the website we read it on. Yes, it is copyright 19... Published in 1986. It's confusing because most of the story itself is set in 1985. Um, so I get a little tripped up there. But, uh, yeah. Um, let's... Shall we just jump in? Unless you have any preamble? No. <laughs> we Reader, did... I'm, you know what? I changed my mind. Rita, I'm so sorry we made you read this. <laughs> No, no one should is, read this for fun. This this is a landmark piece of comic book media. Trash. No, it's not. This is so good. This is something your English teacher makes you read in advanced psychology. This is this is this was this was trailblazing. Y'all out there, have you watched Amazon Prime's The Boys? Guess what? It's based off Watchmen. Well, technically, it's based off the comic book The Boys, but the comic book The Boys is basically just a modern retelling of Watchmen. So. Whatever. And you know what? The boys wasn't that good, too. <laughs> yeah. I read it uh, a couple years ago, like, the whole thing, like, when the first show came out, and I was like, man, this is, is just kind of subpar. <laughs> they don't really do anything past, oh, superheroes kind of suck, don't they? And then that's about as deep as it gets. And then there's, like, some weird transphobic stuff, but we're not here to talk about the boys. We're here to talk about Watchmen, which is very, very uh, 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 dense story-wise. So dense there are so many words so many words i know i'm talking to the readers <laughs> I'm, I'm talking to the listeners our fans your girlfriend your mom hi mom <laughs> hi mom <laughs> i might cut that out in the final edit no i won't we, we both know i won't do that um all right let's jump into this the the year is 1985 and eventually we'll discover that this is uh you know, obviously it's an alternate 1985 because there's freaking superheroes, but like even outside of that, there it's like an alternate history thing. The year is 1985, and a man by the name of Edward Eddie Blake uh, has been thrown out of his high-rise apartment by a home invader. Um, now, Blake, uh, we, we, we are uh, hearing this, uh, we are observing uh, two detectives um, investigate the crime scene and where sort of the omniscient observer um we we learn through them that blake was a very large and powerfully built man so it's it's not you know it's not like it, it was, was no uh, accident that it this was, man was it was no accident it was it was thick glass that he was thrown through nothing was stolen so this was clearly someone with like this was murder yeah over this like a simple like home invasion um, the police also discuss how uh, vigilantes, because not superheroes, they're vigilantes, have been outlawed since uh, 1977 with uh, something called the Keen Act, except for uh, government-sponsored ones and a character named Rorschach. They talk about how he sort of operates. I mean, like, he's a vigilante, so already operates he's, outside the law. He is outlawed. Yeah. He just doesn't care. He just doesn't care. <laughs> We'll, uh, we'll talk about him more later. He's sort of, um, as much as I hate to say it, he's the main character. I'm not going to call him the protagonist, because he sucks We talked about this a little last week. That yeah. If you, if you think Rorschach is the hero here... 
You're wrong. You're wrong. That's that's it. You're just wrong. So uh, after the police leave, that uh, it's nighttime and Rorschach does his own investigation. Uh, and he discovers evidence that uh, Blake was a uh, vigilante superhero known as the Comedian, one of the other government-sponsored ones. How did the police miss this? Who knows? Yeah, there, there is, I gotta say, I just right now I have to praise the artwork in this, the, the use of shadows and the, the, the unique line. It, there's a, it's a really, really well done. There's a, there's a scene here. There's a lot that's said without words, and I know that's saying something for how many words there are in Watchmen. Um, but there's a scene, just like starting off strong with the artwork. There's a scene where Rorschach like does invest, like in the point in the process of investigation, discovers like a false back in the in in Blake's dresser that you know slides out to reveal the comedian suit, and it's very. I don't know. I just I just like the visual design of this of this. I knew you would say something about the artwork and how much you liked it mm-hmm. because I hated it. <laughs> it was drawn by a man who knew he was going to die soon. <laughs> what? what makes you say that? It's so dark. There are... The only color is yellow, really. Yeah, they, they use... Yeah. Like, thema- they use the color yellow a lot thematically as well. He's like, the world is about to end soon. We're covered in <laughs> metaphorical and literal shadows everywhere. Yeah. The, oh, the art is dark because the story is dark. Ooh. Um, there's a lot of, uh, uh, like, clever transitions from scene to scene. Like, it'll zoom in on, like, a photograph and show a face and then, like, jump cut to that same person but, like, decades older or whatever. Or, like, a character will, like, strike a pose and it'll jump cut to a different character doing the same pose. It, it, I, I like I like how it's structured. I think Alan Moore and the artist, whose name I have forgotten, have done a very good job at structuring the story. Are you looking up the artist's name? I am looking up the artist's name. <laughs> um... Whatever. When I find it, I'll I'll read it out. We've gotta we gotta make sure artist dude is okay because this was <laughs> clearly he was going through something. Let's see here, Watchmen artist is Dave Gibbons. That's right. I'm so sorry, Dave Gibbons. And then the colorist was John Higgins. So sorry, John Higgins. <laughs> One of them was dying, but we don't know who. Anyways, um, uh, meanwhile, while Rorschach is doing his late night investigation, meanwhile. Uh, a man named Hollis Mason, who was uh, formerly known as Night Owl, the first Night Owl, is having his weekly beer session with uh, Dan Dreberg, who was also formerly known as N- Night Owl, the second the Night second Owl. Night. They're both retired now. Um, uh, Hollis because he's an old, old man, and Dan because of the Keen Act. He's also kind of an older man, uh, a little pudgy. You know, He hasn't really kept up in superhero shape. Uh, Dan heads home from his meeting to find Rorschach, Sitting in his kitchen, eating cold beans and just whole sugar cubes because Rorschach sucks. Because he sucks. He's the worst. Uh, Rorschach tells him that the comedian is dead and that uh, he suspects there is a cape killer on the loose. I'll also, I'll take this moment to say that I also dislike Rorschach's method of speaking. And um, (laughs) Alan Moore does a lot of time, like writing out the mouth noises that he's making and it sucks. <laughs> he he wrote out schlorp. <laughs> he wrote out schlorp.
the first the first line Rorschach has is eh. <laughs> he wrote out <laughs> schlop flop schlorp lep to represent him eating cold beans. In another man's you don't eat another man's cold beans just when you break into his kitchen. You just don't do that, Rorschach. Listen, Rorschach sucks. Anyways, um, Rorschach thinks that there's like a cape color conspiracy because he's paranoid. Um, and uh, he mentions that um, Blake and Mason, so that's comedian and the first night owl. I'm going to be for the, the, the heroes that we're following that are like still in their semi prime. I'm going to be referring to them by their first name or by their code name. And then for like the older heroes, I'm mostly going to be using last name. So Hollis Mason, a.k.a. Night Owl 1. Uh, Ed Blake, a.k.a. Comedian. So uh, Rorschach mentions that Blake and Mason were on a super team together back in like the 40s uh, and that Mason wrote a uh, uh, sort of like a tell-all called Under the Hood that describes his time as a superhero. That's who book I was reading. Yes, we'll get to that more um, in a bit. Uh, And that Mason wrote a book that said, quote, bad things about the comedian. Um, Rorschach then leaves, mentioning that... um, Dan and Rorschach used to be like a, a crime fighting duo and that they only stopped working together because Dan quit. And then Dan sits sadly in his garage surrounded by dusty superhero equipment because he's sad. <laughs> he's a sad old man now. Rorschach then goes to a dive bar and assaults innocent people and learns nothing for it. <laughs> that was fun. That's just a scene to show how much Rorschach sucks. He just walks into a bar and breaks people's fingers and then walks out. And people still are like, you know what? I want to be just like Rorschach. Rorschach's, Rorschach's like my, my my role model, dude. Oh my god. Uh, he then heads to meet Adrian Veidt, formerly known as Ozymandias, aka the world's smartest man. Um, he tells him about Blake and his uh, cape killer theory. Uh, Veidt left the superhero game two years before the Keen Act, so that's in 75, uh, to make his own company, profiting off of his former exploits through, like, merchandising and stuff, uh, and is now one of the most, like, he's like, basically he's like if Lex Luthor was a good guy, in terms of, like, intelligence and business acumen. Um, <clears throat> Veidt and Rorschach argue about stuff, they mention that the Keen Act was made due to a police, like, an anti-superhero police strike. Um, this whole time we're, uh, uh, reading Rorschach's inner thoughts via his journal, uh, in which he rambles about how much he hates everyone around him, especially liberals. Uh, <laughs> you call, like, anyone he disagrees with, he's like, frickin' liberals in his little diary. <laughs> um, it's at this point, uh, as Rorschach is rambling in his journal, we learn a little bit more about, uh, like, the former heroes and where they are now. Um, most of them are dead. The ones that are left alive are either disgraced, retired, or working for the government. Speaking of which, Rorschach breaks into a military research center outside of New York City to talk to John Osterman, a.k.a. Dr. Manhattan, a.k.a. the Indestructible Man, and his girlfriend, Lori Juspezik, a.k.a. Lori Jupiter, a.k.a. Spilk Sector... Silk Silk Spectre. Spectre 2 the daughter of Sally Jupiter, the first Silk Spectre. Um, John is, like, weird and blue and naked and omniscient and, like, disconnected from the people around him. Um, He's vibing. He's on his own wavelength. Yeah. Uh, Rorschach and Laurie discuss how Blake tried to... um, Can we say the R word on air? 
Yes. Uh, so Blake tried to rape uh, Laurie's mother, the first Silk Spectre, uh, forty years ago, or maybe uh, however many years ago, back in the, back in like the early forties, which is the bad back thing. Their, yeah, back in their prime. Yeah, yeah. This is in the eighties, so it would be forty years ago in the forties. Um, yeah, Blake tried to rape Laurie's mom, uh, the first Silk Spectre, uh, back in the forties, which was the bad thing from Mason's book that he was discussing with Dan. Um, Rorschach basically says, "Who cares about rape, lol?" Uh, which upsets Laurie, who makes Manhattan teleport, who makes John teleport Rorschach out of the base because John can just do that because he's basically God. Um, My base. <laughs> Laurie then makes plans to meet up with Dan uh, while Manhattan continues to vibe and ignore his girlfriend. Uh, Rorschach then laments in his diary. I'm going to keep calling it a diary to belittle it because it sucks. Rorschach then continued to lament continues to lament in his diary about how no one cares that the comedian is dead except for him because everyone else sucks, <laughs> according to Rorschach. Apparently. No, no, not apparently. Uh, it's because Rorschach and comedian are the ones who suck. <laughs> we'll get uh, well, into that. Yeah, so, we'll, and we'll talk about this more later. Part of Rorschach's uh, worldview, I guess you can say, is that, like, everyone sucks except him and comedian. Um, really which is why he's like, opposite. yeah, which is like why he's digging so hard into comedian's death. But like, really, it's him and comedian that are the sucky ones. Anyways, uh, Laurie and Dan get dinner. They reminisce about their days as crime fighters. Um, and it closes with, um, I, I, I really like this scene. Uh, they talk about, they talk about a super villain that they fought, just like all of them as a group fought. Um, who uh, had a was only in it to get beat up, like he just got off on that, and like how most of the heroes would just ignore him whenever he showed up, uh, except for Rorschach, who dropped him down an elevator shaft. <laughs> um, and then, so this is where this is every issue ends with like a couple pages of just pure text that are it, it's purely world building. It doesn't have a major influence on the story as it goes, but it just builds more of the world around it. I think it's really interesting. I like reading through it, but it, it is... It's it's denser than the rest. Yes. It is literally just a book. Um, on the end, of, the end of issue one is an expert, is an excerpt, pardon me, from uh, Mason's book, Under the Hood, uh, where he details his life before he became Night Owl, what made him want to become a crime fighter, and sort of how the first crime fighter, a man by the name of Hooded Justice, first like showed up on the scene. Uh, and that's issue one. Um, any thoughts? Fifteen for... minutes in. Only Ugh, issue we, this might be a three-parter, honestly. We might only get up through issue four. Um, which, I don't know. I feel is appropriate. This is like a really important piece of superhero literature, so I don't mind like taking more time on it to really take it apart. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this point about the first issue? Like the hooded justice looks like a racist. Uh... Yeah, it's unfortunate that I mean he doesn't have like a cone thing on his head, so it's not like a KKK outfit, and it's all like black cloth. But uh, it's just like a hood over his head and a noose around his neck. That's his costume. Um, issue two: uh, John teleports Laurie to visit her mother in California, while everyone else goes to Blake's funeral. And by everyone else, I mean John, Dan, and Vite are all, like, in attendance. Um, the, the rest of this issue is sort of dedicated to seeing parts of Blake's life via the people that, at his funeral and Sally, Laura's mother. 
Um, we see the Minutemen, who were the uh, uh, first crime-fighting group to form, uh, having a meeting in the 40s. Um, in attendance are, including, including others, uh, Sally, Blake, Mason, Hooded Justice, and a man named Nelson Gardiner, a.k.a. Captain Metropolis. There's like three or four other crime fighters there, but they aren't important, um, which is why I don't mention them. Um, after the meeting, Sally stays behind to change into street clothes and Blake assaults and tries to rape her and it's very gross. Uh, and then Hooded Justice shows up and basically beats him into a pulp and stops him. So, yay, I guess. <laughs> um, in the present, uh, by the present I mean the 80s, Sally and Laurie are arguing and Sally claims that the government only keeps Laurie around to keep John happy, which like... Yikes, Mom. Probably true, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Laurie doesn't really do anything except use the government's money. <laughs> like, she doesn't... Like, John, at least, is doing, like, experiments and stuff, but Laurie's just kind of hanging around. Um, and at this point, Sally is like, you know what? What happened in the past? Fine. I'm sad I didn't go to go to my rapist funeral. <laughs> Which is like, yee, okay. Uh, I mean, I guess I'll understand when I'm old. I'm I'll Maybe look back and like you know what it didn't matter. I guess nothing so. mattered. I don't know if it was like it didn't matter to the point where I'd go to the funeral. Not the point. Um, then we see a flashback to uh, 1966, where now aging gardener tries to form the Crime Busters, consisting of himself, Vite, Blake, Rorschach, Dan, Laurie, John, and a different woman that is hanging out with John, like his girlfriend at the time um the group falls apart at their first meeting mainly because of blake he's like ah y'all suck i want to go fight in wars being a superhero is lame or whatever i don't know um gardner then desperately claims somebody has to save the world as all and that's a quote quote somebody has to save the world as all but bite leave the room um and during the meeting john just kept like staring at laurie and it was really weird um <clears throat> flash forward again to 71 uh, John and Blake are in Vietnam as agents of the United States as they witness the end of the war. Um, I believe one of the major changes in this alternate timeline is that the U.S. won the Vietnam War, which I'm pretty sure they didn't in real life. I didn't realize it ended. Okay. <laughs> I don't think we really want to get into this right now. Uh, but one of the major differences in this timeline that like explains you know sort of everyone's mental whatever just like the common man's mental state is that mostly due to <laughs> dr manhattan like melting tanks and stuff uh, the u.s won vietnam whatever extent whatever you want to call means. it whatever that means um blake is getting drunk at a bar as john is just kind of standing in the background uh, and he claims that everything is a big joke and that he's just quote playing along with the gag um then a very pregnant Vietnamese woman shows up uh, saying that Blake got her pregnant during the war um, and she tries to like, convince Blake to stay or pay for the baby or just in some way acknowledge her existence. Uh, and Blake's basically it's like, like nah. he's just like, uh, no, nah, I don't care about you. and I hate women. So bye. Um, so then she breaks the bottle and scars his face horrifically. <laughs> And then uh, Blake shoots and kills her while John just kind of stands by and watches. Um, 
Blake then goes on a rant, claiming that John doesn't really care about humans, didn't care about a woman named Janie Slater, who we will learn more about later, and soon will stop caring about Laurie, his new girlfriend at the time. Um, flash forward again, uh, I believe this is in either 76 or 77, um, Dan and Dan as Night Owl 2 and Blake are trying to quell a massive riot in New York City that's part of the uh, general police riots that led up to the Keene Act. Um, Blake doesn't really seem to care about like protecting people and again treats it all as a big joke. Um, a rioter then graffitis Who Watches the Watchmen, which is a, a translation of a Latin term that's like a commentary on government or something, and is the base. It, it, it's why, it, um, it's why the series is named Watchmen. That's that's the. Um, I don't think the the group of heroes that we see are were ever formally called the Watchmen as like a super team. It's just that this series is called Watchmen. So that's I didn't really realize that until I like read it for this show. I didn't ever realize that like Dan and Laurie and everyone were never officially called like oh we're the Watchmen. Watchmen. Okay, <clears throat> I like who watches the Watchmen. It's it sounds cool. It does sound cool. It's a Latin phrase that Alan Moore said. I like that, and then made it the title of his series. Um, Dan then asks, what happened to the American dream? And Blake answers, it came true. You're looking at it. Um, in the present, and by the present, I mean 85, uh, Rorschach visits the home of an aged retired villain named Moloch. I think that's how you pronounce it. And brutally assaults him. He just breaks into an old man's house. And then just beats beats him up. up. Just beats up an old man. Um. Moloch claim, uh, says that Blake broke into his home at night uh, a week before his death and uh, drunk- drunkenly rambled about some quote-unquote big joke. Uh, he mentions, and there's a, a couple of important things here, he mentions first a list of names that had Moloch, Jenny Slater, Moloch and Jenny Slater on it. Um, he mentions something involving John. He mentions an island with writers, scientists, and artists on it, and that something is happening on that island that's worse than anything Blake had did in Vietnam. Including, I think he mentions shooting kids. Yeah, he mentions shooting children. So, something's going on that's worse than shooting children. And this was was the only thing that kept me invested in this this comic. I was like, ooh, what are they doing? Intrigue. Um, Blake then begs God for forgiveness and begs Moloch, for someone, anyone, to explain what's so funny to him. Uh, end flashback. And then Moloch informs Rorschach that he's dying from incurable cancer. Uh, the issue ends with Rorschach breaking into Blake's graveyard to pay his respects. Uh, and this is a very famous scene where uh, Rorschach tells the now famous uh, Pogliacci joke. And I'll be reading it out in my best Rorschach voice. This is like this is like this is one of the things that like people either remember or uh, like recount the most when they talk when they're talking about the Watchmen. joke. Yeah, specifically this joke. I don't know why it got so famous out of all the things that happened in the series, but uh, yeah, because I I knew this joke and I didn't know it was from Watchmen. I don't think it, I don't know. I, it might have just like existed before Watchmen, but like Watchmen definitely popularized it. Um, <clears throat> here we go. Her joke once. Oh. <laughs> Have you ever seen the Zack Snyder Watchmen film? No. Okay, well I that's don't what... support Zack Snyder. Yeah. Hey, if we had a, if we had like if 
a video rendition of this. This is where a banner would appear on screen that said, we don't support Zack Snyder in this household. <laughs> Honestly, I might put that up somewhere in my room. Get a poster that says, we don't support Zack Snyder in this household. Anyways, her joke was, man goes to doctor, says he's depressed, says life seems harsh and cruel. Says he feels all alone in a threatening world where what lies ahead is vague and uncertain. Doctor says, treatment is simple. Great clown Pagliacci is in town tonight. Go and see him. That should pick you up. Man bursts into tears. Says, but doctor, I am Pag- Pagliacci. Good joke. Everybody laugh. Roll on snare drum. Curtains. That's what he... Hey, you want to watch the Watchmen movie just to... Yeah. Yeah, let's do that later. After we've uh, actually read it. <laughs> Um, the, uh, the ending of this issue, the, the text block is another excerpt from Under the Hood where Mason details uh, how he first became Night Owl and tells of the formation of the Minutemen in 1939 as well as brief descriptions of all the members. Issue three. Um, this is where we're introduced to the news vendor who pops in and out uh, basically for the rest of the series um, and just sort of talks about life <laughs> He's like a crotchety old man that runs in, uh, that runs like a news shop on the streets of New York City. Um, and he is, I believe he's meant to sort of show us what the everyman is thinking about all the events that happened. Because he just shows up intermittently. Um, so I'm going to call him the news vendor. Um, His first line, we ought to nuke Russia and let God sort it out, was the funniest thing I've <laughs> ever read. Yeah, so this, this issue introduces two uh, concepts that are... Uh, just continue to run throughout. They're interwoven throughout the scenes of Watchmen, throughout the next couple issues of Watchmen. The first is the news vendor. Um, the other is the Black Freighter, which is an in-universe uh, comic book about pirates. Um, it has no real bearing on the story. When I reread Watchmen, I usually just skip over the Black Freighter chunks of text because it's just a pirate story um, that Alan Moore decided to add in. It's, it's great world building. Like, he, he talks about it in interviews that, like, he specifically chose to make it a pirate book, pirate comic, because he reasoned that, like, in a world with real-life superheroes, no one would want to read about superheroes. That's fair. Um, so we'll, we'll just gonna, we're just going to be skipping over anything involving the Black Freighter, because it's not important. Um, so the newspaper vendor uh, is complaining about nuking Russia, while in the background a New York City employee is putting up fallout shelter signs. Uh, you can also spot in this scene... Um, a uh, missing persons poster for a writer, maybe tying into the thing Blake was talking about. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, this is one of those series where like, once you read it through and like, you know everything, you can go back and you can start like picking out all the little breadcrumbs that like put it all together. Again, great world building. This is, this, like, I know I'm going to criticize it a lot, but I also have to gush about it. This is a masterclass in world building. I got to praise it for that. I got to praise Alan Moore for his world building. Oh yeah, it is fantastic world building. As much as I think everyone in this comic sucks <laughs> and the art style sucks and the talking sucks, <laughs> world building on point. <laughs> yeah, it's just a shame that most of the world building is in giant blocks of text at the end of every issue. Um, yes, so jump cut. Uh, John is in bed with Laurie. And then another John is in bed with Laurie. And then another John is in bed with Laurie. Uh, and Laurie's like, what's happening? Laurie realizes that he's duplicated himself to both be with her in bed and continue his lab experiments. Uh, and she freaks and walks out. Understandably so. 
That's like not a cool thing to do. I I feel like it's okay. He was kind enough to be like, you know what? I have to go do work, but I'm going to leave another me here with you. In fact, I'm going to give her another another me just for fun. Just for funsies. Because he thinks, quote, I thought you might like that. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. So he's trying his hardest. I guess. I don't know. It's He is on completely another wavelength than all of the <laughs> earth. I know you're saying that as a meme, but like he really, like literally he, he is, is on another wavelength. He is on another wavelength from the rest of the entire earth. Yeah. Um, the, the These scenes are intercut with uh, Janie Slater giving an interview uh, about how John has lost his ability to relate to people and how he ended up leaving her for the younger Laurie. Um, apparently she gave the interviewer info so that quote, everybody's going to know what he did. Uh, Laurie then goes to Dan's place. Who's, uh, in the process. This is sort of the setup for a joke that I like that comes later. Dan's in the process of getting his lot upgraded so that Rorschach will stop breaking into his house and eating his beans and sugar. Um, Laurie then- Like some kind of rabbit raccoon. (laughs) Uh, Laurie then breaks down again in front of Dan and describes how detached John is and how, you know, he's not really interacting, uh, a person anymore. Um, meanwhile, John is getting ready for his TV interview by sitting in front of his, uh, dresser and just having the clothes teleport onto his body. Um, Laurie then- Not gonna lie, that's kind of (laughs) sick. It is, like, when you see John use his powers, it's pretty sick. He can do basically anything. Uh... Laurie then walks Dan to his weekly meeting with Mason. Um, John then shows up at the TV station for his interview. And there's another little funny bit where the producer's like, you're too bright of a blue for TV. And he's like, okay, I can fix that. And then makes his skin a darker shade of blue. And the TV manager's like, uh, yeah, I guess that works. Yep, that's fine. So John starts his interview while Dan and Laurie are getting mugged. (laughs) Uh, but don't worry, Dan and Lori easily beat the crap out of their muggers. <laughs> and this is why you don't mug people... Who used to be superheroes. In a world where there are superheroes, don't mug people. Because <laughs> obviously, you have the worst luck in the world if you're a mugger already. And of course, anyone you try to rob is gonna have the strength of Atlas. <laughs> or something like that. Or something like that. That's like... That's what I wonder whenever we like Batman stuff. It's like I can see like the 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 characters that are like mentally unwell like continuing to do their crime, but like why would you be like a career mugger in Gotham City? That's the quickest way to get all of your bones broken. All of them. By someone with a bat fetish. It doesn't matter who. It's just like you mug someone in Gotham, you're going to get your go- bones broken, buddy. <laughs> like that's it. <laughs> Totally unrelated, but did you see the tweet I sent you about Batman's parents walking down a street <laughs> called Crime Alley with fur coat and jewels? And pearls. Yeah, that's a joke that has been made many a time that these people... I think there are some writers that have retconned it that like, oh, it wasn't called Crime Alley until after the Waynes were killed in there or something like that. Why were you in an alley anyway? <laughs> I don't know, because Bruce wanted to take a shortcut. That's not what we're talking about, Okay. Anyways, uh, as Dan and Lori beat the crap out of their muggers, um, the journalist, this, this, this TV interview is also sort of like a press conference. So there's a bunch of like journalists in the crowd. Um, and the one that interviewed Janie uh, stands up and reveals to both John and the crowd and the 
television cameras that uh, many people John had interacted with, including both allies and enemies, uh, are dying or have died from different terminal forms of cancer, including Moloch, who we talked to earlier, where he was talking about how he has cancer. Um, this, of course, is like a big bombshell, um, and the journalists present very quickly turn into a mob, and John, for the first time ever, shows emotion. Unfortunately, that emotion is anger as he yells, leave me alone, and teleports everyone except him out of the te- TV studio. The stupidest plan. What? That seems like so much extra work. It's, I mean, I I think that John doesn't really ever have to exert any form of effort, so it's not really a question of work. But yeah, he could have just teleported himself. Yes, but he was like, I'm going to put everyone back in their place. <laughs> um, Laurie heads to a hotel and Dan reaches Mason's where he uh, watches a replay of John's interview slash breakdown. John then returns to his rooms in the military base, and he encounters sort of like a grunt putting up like a, a, a danger radio- radiation sign on his door. They work fast. The military <laughs> works fast. It's the military. Um, he then teleports to Arizona, sans clothes. We should, this is, um, I kind of wanted to hold on to this until the uh, issue that is very John-focused, but we're already seeing little inklings of it already in this, so I'll briefly mention it now. Um this story is told non-linearly. There's a lot that's like told in flashbacks. So we can see that when John first started out, he was wearing like a full bodysuit. And by the 80s, he's just stopped wearing clothes. Like uh, He's realized he's surpassed the need for clothes. It's it's a visual metaphor for his... Um, it's a pretty good, like, you know, because if, if you stop thinking about yourself as a human, obviously you're going to stop caring about clothes. Like, why would someone who's not human care about clothes? So it's a, it's a direct visual metaphor for him losing his connection to humanity. Uh, it's just unfortunate that they had to do that metaphor in the form of a visual blue dingus. Because we, we see it a lot. We do. We do. It's, it's unfortunate. Um, so John teleports to Arizona, leaving his clothes in New York, telling the military that he will not return. Uh, he picks up a photo from the ruins of a bar and then teleports to Mars. Laurie returns to find her rooms being torn apart by men in hazmat suits, and the military is like, uh, we don't really need you anymore because your boyfriend left, so... Oh, well. Proving her mother right. Yeah. Uh, Rorschach visit, visits Dan the next morning to tell him about John going to Mars and how it fits into his cape killer theory because he's paranoid. Um, the news vendor... Uh, then uh, receives a headline that Russia has invaded Afghanistan, which sort of puts him in shell shock. And he changes his like callous, selfish outlook that he'd been bragging about throughout into like all of a sudden he like cares because this is like the start of World War Three, basically. <laughs> Again, this is um, uh, alternate history. Instead of Russia being a Cold War thing, Russia just like straight up invades Afghanistan in this timeline. So that's fun. Instead of the U.S. doing it first, Russia did it. <laughs> um, John is exploring. We then intercut between John exploring Mars and the president uh, consulting the military about Russia's plans and possible nuclear responses with the most likely outcome. Uh, immediately taking out the entire U.S. eastern seaboard and then covering most of middle America in nuclear fallout. So that's fun. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Another major theme of this is, um, like, anti-nuclear weapons, which is, I think, a pretty common theme for that era of comics. 
Um, and then that's the end of issue three. Um, more another excerpt from Mason's book talks about uh, how like sort of the fall of his generation of crime fighters um, and the rise of the second generation, uh, and that includes uh, Mason's own retirement. <clears throat> we yeah we're only going we're probably only going to be able to do four issues. Well, I don't know. We might be able to do six. This is either going to be two parts or three parts. We'll see. So <laughs> we're doing, we did our first two-parter last month, and now we're doing our first three-parter. Because uh, we just continue doing big stories. Issue four. This one is uh, a doozy. I love this one. This one was so, written so well. Yes. because Basically because are... there are a lot of short sentences. <laughs> by this point in the, in the comic, my brain had... Uh, backfired mm -hmm. so issue four is uh john centric we uh, are experiencing his non-linear perspective of time so he experiences everything that he has and will experience both pre-superpowers and post-superpowers simultaneously so um he'll say stuff like it is 1985 i am on mars it is 1966. I am wearing a costume. And it's just stuff like that. Uh, so it's, it, it's, this one's a little hard to wrap your head around. A, around um, I, I'm, I tried to um, write everything out in the most linear fashion I could. You did a pretty good job. Yeah, so we're going to be doing it that way instead of the non-linear way that it's presented. So that we can actually get the proper story. 1945. A young John Osterman is living with his watchmaker father who tells him to ditch the family trade to pursue nuclear physics after they receive news that a bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. By 58, he has graduated from Princeton with a PhD in atomic physics. 59, he arrives at Gila Flats in Arizona and starts working. Uh, he sees a test vault that manipulates intrinsic fields, the force that holds atoms together. Same day, he meets Janie Slater for the first time. They flirt. I don't know if intrinsic fields are real or not. This might just be... Um, comic book pseudoscience they came up with in the in the 80s yeah this i will say that like i i, I think alan moore has done a lot to try like you, you you could the argument could be made that like the elevator pitch for this is like what if superheroes were real um so there, there's a lot of this that's grounded in reality but also there's a large blue man with his dong out that can just change reality whenever he wants so hey if you're listening and you know anything about uh, atomic physics, message us. Shoot us an email. Let us know if intrinsic fields are real or not. Because <laughs> we're not going to bother to look that up. Yeah. Uh, John and Janie are then at a boardwalk and they have a picture taken. And it's the same picture that John took from the ruined bar last issue. Uh, Janie's watch breaks and John offers to fix it. Um, a couple weeks later, John leaves it in, a, in the test chamber accidentally. He goes in to grab it and gets locked in during the test. And uh, the experiment tears him apart, atom by atom. It's It was so sad watching this... him get stuck and everyone like, wow, we can't help you, dude. Yeah, tragic. Really tragic. Art is beautiful. I gotta, I, 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 again, I have to praise the art of like his meat and bones being, there, there's, it's especially tragic, the exact frame where he's being torn apart, he has one eye remaining, and he's just dead-eyeing the camera. And you can see the desperation in his face. His face that is just a skull. It's really, ugh, haunting. 
Over the next couple months, John pulls himself together atom by atom. Um, so, like, uh, it, it, this is another really interesting bit. First, he appears as, like, a floating nervous system. Then a floating skeleton with a nervous system. Then, like, a floating musculature system. So, you, you see that he is rebuilding Be, his yeah. body. Um, he eventually uh, reappears as a blue floating godlike being with his dong out and everything. This is this panel, like the panel where he fully reappears, is really like you're just eye level with that thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's the artist started drawing there and worked his way out. <laughs> he started from there and worked outwards. Uh, um, the reconstituted John tells Janie that he'll always love her, and he knowing that's a lie. Yeah, he says that as he's perceiving. Him getting with Laurie in the 60s. Uh, 1960, the, the government gives John a full body costume. Um, and as we've already discussed, he loses. He slowly stops wearing pieces of it. Uh, he ends up giving himself a hydrogen atom logo. And the government names him Dr. Manhattan to associate him with the Manhattan Project. Even though, uh, in typical government PR fashion, the two had nothing to do with each other. <laughs> It's then like, uh, yeah, we did this on purpose. Don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, there's Look then what we a... did with Dr. Manhattan. Imagine what we're doing with the Manhattan Project. Ooh. Fear us, Russia. <laughs> um, then there, there is then like a press, uh, there's a press packet put together that shows John using his powers and then it's then like released to the whole world. So like he deconstructs a gun piece by piece. He melts a tank. He shoots lasers, etc., etc. Um, John meets the Minutemen, who were the crime fighters of the 50s, uh, or 40s, rather, 40s and 50s, uh, and his internal monologue claims that he has nothing in common with any of them except Vite, who at this point had just debuted as Ozymandias. That's the smartest man in the world, right? Yes. Okay. So, the godlike being and the smartest man in the world. By October of 1960, John is fighting crime, but only because the government tells him to and not because he wants to. And he's already just, like, blowing up people's heads. Oh, yeah. Like, Someone's not... pointing a gun at him, and he just points And their head blows head. up. It's just gone. It's just gone. So, that's fun. There's a weird scene where he shakes John F. Kennedy's hand and just perceives his entire assassination. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah, that's, that's sort of um, an integral piece of John's character is that he... He, he seems very sort of resigned and disinterested, and that's mostly stems from the fact that he can perceive his whole timeline, but is unable to, like, deviate from the script, basically. Um, in 62, he single-handedly invents electric cars. Um, by 1985, we've seen that, like, electric cars are everywhere, so that's another, like, te- technology is, like, jumped forward by Dr. Manhattan's very existence. It's at this point that Janie learns of John's nonlinear perception, um, and she's like, "Oh, so I'm just a puppet on a spring on a, on strings to you." And he's like, "I mean, kind of." <laughs> and then she proceeds to do exactly what he said she would do. Yeah, because he experiences everything that will happen. Uh, nine, it is 1966. John meets Laurie at the Crime Busters Crime Busters meeting, then cheats on Janie with her as they're going on patrol. 1971, John and Blake are sent to Vietnam uh, in John's uh, 
personal monologue, he calls Blake, quote, deliberately amoral, which I think is an interesting way to put it. Uh, 75, Vite retires from adventuring. John and Laurie visit his Antarctic retreat, which will come up again later. Um, <coughs> Vite just kind of vibes there doing rich people thing with uh, his pet, Bastis, which is a genetically altered lynx. And she's just, very cute. Just rich people thing. Just rich people thing. 1977, John and Laurie are protecting the White House from the riots. John teleports all of the rioters back to their homes, resulting in two deaths via heart attacks. <laughs> He says something like, you, you, will, will, you will all go home. And they're like, what if we don't want to? That was not a question. <laughs> it was not a request. Yeah, and then they're just gone. Yeah, I, they, too, would drop dead. <laughs> I, too, would be like, wow, I'm indoors now. The, the quote was, uh, he says, pay attention. You will all return to your homes. And then a crowd member says, oh, yeah, what if we don't, you big blue fruit? And he says, you misunderstand me. It was not a request. And then they're just gone. Like... Holy crap. <laughs> um, the two people dropped dead of heart attacks. Yeah. He's like, I'm sure other people would have died if I had not done that. Mm-hmm. So it's fine. He then recalls how he and Blake were the only two adventurers exempt from the Keen Act because they were both working for the military. Uh, 1981, John and Laurie are living at the military research center that we've seen in New York City. Or not in New York City, just in New York. Um, Rockefeller. I don't know anything about the New York City area, so I think Rockefeller is somewhere near the city. I wouldn't know. Um, then like a medley of events rush past, uh, as John admits to the audience that, uh, he is quote, tired of these world, these people. And then on Mars, John builds a giant glass fortress. Um, then there is a, uh, the, the text excerpt, uh, at the end of this issue is from a like book or pamphlet, I think on sort of John, his powers and his effect on the world. There's a, there's a, a, a really interesting paragraph that i want to read out verbatim because i i find it to be just just like in terms of world building really powerful when news of this being's phenomenal genesis was first revealed to the world a certain phrase was used that has at varying times been attributed both to me and others on the news flashes coming over our tvs on that fateful night one sentence was repeated over and over again the superman exists and he's american i never said that although i do recall saying something similar to a persistent reporter who would not leave without a quote. I presume the remark was edited or toned down so as not to offend public sensibility. In any event, I never said the Superman exists and he's American. What I said was God exists and he's American. Shivers. Really. I, again, the world building is impeccable. Just in that paragraph, you just perfectly sum up like John's whole just... The, 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 the reverberating effects that he had on this world purely by existing. You get John, you get the media, you get the military, all of that in John's little story. Yeah, you get American superiority, even more than in real life. You get, like, all this technology jumping forward. It's, it's, it's nuts. God exists and he's American. Ugh. <laughs> So, we have 10 minutes left. I do not think we have time to get into issue 5. Okay. Um, do I, you want to talk about WandaVision? <laughs> yeah, you know what? Yeah, why not? Kendra and I uh, recently binged WandaVision, at least as far as we could, because there's only four issues left. Uh, four, bleh, We're only four episodes four in. Four episodes out. Four issues left. Four episodes out. So, okay. 
business first. Um, this will be a three-parter. <laughs> We're going to do four. So we did one through four today. We're going to do five through eight next week, and then nine through twelve the following week, which is not our normal format. That's but like so many weeks of Watchmen. The good news is, it gives us time to read more, <laughs> to actually parse through all the text because there's a lot of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, next week, Watchmen Part 2 of 3. Um, WandaVision. Thoughts? I love it. I love it. A lot of people are complaining that it's different from other Marvel, uh, media. Oh, boohoo. <laughs> yeah. That's all I have to say to that. I, but um... I, and they're talking about, oh, don't worry, it's gonna get to a place where, like, traditional Marvel fans will appreciate. I hope and not. I, I hope not. I hope there's not a big CGI fight where Vision is shooting lasers and Wanda's doing magic and there's like robots and stuff. I really hope that it just continues to be like just I don't know. this weird nonsense. Yeah, the closest we got to that was in issue or episode four, where uh, spoilers for WandaVision, by the way. Uh, just turn off the podcast <laughs> if you don't want to hear it because that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode. The closest we got to like traditional Marvel media is where Wanda just like throws. Monica through a wall. <laughs> yeah, through a few walls. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, it's... First and foremost, I have to praise the set designers and the writers for how accurately they recreated sitcoms from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Like, oh my god. <laughs> it is near perfect. I was really thinking during the first episode that we were going to watch an entire 50s sitcom. And I was so upset. <laughs> I, that was tickled pink. I found myself... I wasn't laughing at every joke, but like the sitcom bits, I found myself genuinely laughing at a couple of the jokes. And I won't apologize. I'm giggly. I like jokes. I like comedy. So excuse me if I'm going to laugh at a well-written joke. After watching what Watchmen, uh, after reading Watchmen, it's fine. You get to be <laughs> giggly. You get to find anything and everything humorous. <laughs> Yeah, um, really, I, the, the pacing is really good, too. Like, it's mostly, at least for the first three episodes, um, there, there's the slow, because the first episode is, like, 90% sitcom and 10% intrigue, but then over the next four episodes, they just slowly inch that line further and forward, further, where you get less sitcom and more, uh, intrigue with every episode, and it's really well done, um. There's been a lot of Easter eggs, a lot of cameos. Um, what's her name from Thor comes back? The sassy scientist that I don't think anyone liked when those movies came out. I liked her. <laughs> I also didn't watch the whole movie. Yeah, Thor 1 and 2 aren't good. So Thor 1 is just kind of boring. And then Thor 2 is uh, just bad. actively bad. Um, uh, uh, Jimmy Woo from Ant-Man and Wasp comes back. And there's a very cute moment where, like, he shows that he learned, like, the close-up magic that Scott was doing in that movie. And now I want to learn close-up magic. Of course you do. Of course you do. I'm going to buy a close-up magic kit. Of course you do. I'm not surprised. Um, we see, uh, and again, this is off waters. We see Monica Rambeau, who was hinted at in Captain Marvel. Monica Rambeau in the comics has also gone by the name Captain Marvel. Uh, though uh, her most modern uh, code name is Photon. Her powers are energy-based and, like, light-based, so we'll see if that gets uh, incorporated in any manner. Um, 
Wanda and Vision are being observed by an organization named SWORD, which uh, in this universe stands for Sentient Weapon Observation and Response Division, I believe. I'm not sure what the yes. last D is. Uh, the, that's interesting because in the comics, SWORD usually stands for Sentient World Observation and Response Division. So uh, SWORD was um, like, like S.H.I.E.L.D. but pointed outward. So SWORD was all about space and managing extraterrestrial relations and all that where sword in wandavision seems to be mostly focused on like observe like looking out for like ai and like strange occurrences that involve sentient weapons um so you know it's interesting to me that like the changing of one little tiny keyword can just fundamentally change a whole fictional organization yeah it and they made it clear that it started out as world and not weapon did they? Yeah, because they were talking about how back before the snap, they were sending people into space and mm. doing oh. a lot of space stuff. Right, that's right. And then when she came back, they were like, oh, now we've now moved we do on AI. to AI and nanotech. Right. That's, you actually reminded me of something else I want to talk about. Um, we get to, In episode four, we get to see a little bit more of... Um, what hat like the results of then like the, the the after effects of thanos's snap which we didn't see at all in avengers and then we saw a little bit of of uh, of in uh, far from home but it was mostly just played for laughs um so i i appreciate again the world building in seeing because because the, the the scene that that we're talking about takes place within a hospital so like patients are snapping back into place Doctors are snapping back into place, and it's all just chaos. I wonder if people snap back into place, like, over other people. Hmm. Like, if they had a patient on the table, and one patient disappeared during the snap. And they just had to bring in a new patient. And, and they just a, a different into, surgery. Just phased into the other person. I want to say, because it's, like, magic, basically, there was probably something that, like, the stones were like, oh, you know everyone's safe or whatever because we were talking about them when we saw this like what about pilots what about people that were on planes did they just appear several thousand feet in the air and then fall to their deaths their second deaths unclear uh but yes we we, we see more that um the people that were snapped out of existence um have no memory of it to them like no time has passed so it's just very uh kind of sad what can i say i like world building um that's probably going to be it for us today right unless you have anything else to comment on no (laughs) all right then um if you want to talk to us in any regard uh questions comments suggestions for future storylines just want to chat just want to have your opinions read out uh you can tweet us you can follow us on twitter and tweet us at cbbc pod that's at cbbc pod uh, or you can email us at cbbcpod at gmail.com. Same spelling. Um, next week, we will be just talking about Watchmen again. Um, I've been your host, Matt Lasick. I was your co-host, Kendra Forte. And until next week, Excelsior. <laughs>